0: listener production The thing is that it all happened so quickly. I went to my work and said, "Hey, I think I'm going to go off and do this thing." I basically took 4 days a week leave for 12 weeks. Once we started describing that's we were going to build the backbone of the business on, and everyone went, "Oh, that's fantastic." I would actually do that. I went, "Okay, there's definitely something here."
1: G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool and the host of The Good Oil, and thank you for listening. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and yep, the real stuff. That's the aim of this podcast. As you know, we bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, with executives and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Now, today's guest is someone who really is making things happen in a really fascinating part of not only the economy, part of the world, part of Australia in particular, but maybe elsewhere as well. He is, of course, Justin Hales. He is CEO of Camplify. Justin, welcome to The Good Oil. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having me. I Really appreciate it.
1: Mate, I really I'm fascinated by your business. I must say I'm an avid camp. I haven't yet used Camplify, so maybe we'll talk about that later. We can uh, we can you maybe you can try and uh, try and convince me. But uh, mate, let's before we before we kick into the Camplify story, let's just try and set the scene a little bit. What how do you describe Camplify?
0: Uh, well, the I guess the way that other people describe it is a little bit like Airbnb but for caravans, campervans uh, and motorhomes. Um, but, you know, we basically describe it as, you know, we're an sort of all-encompassing RV marketplace. So we make it easy for the owner of a vehicle to connect up with the hirer hire of a vehicle uh, and and provide everything that those two parties need. So we provide uh, insurance, roadside cover, support, handle all the cash transactions, provide the software, you name it. So we, we provide everything that those two people need to be able to transact together.
1: How, how do you go from... You know, uh, the 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 day job of what you are doing. To you know, what I've got an idea. How does that? What's the genesis of the idea itself? We'll get to the business in a second,
0: but what's the genesis of the idea? Yeah, so I guess um, at that stage I was working for that uh, mining software company. You know, as I mentioned, we we had listed. um, That journey went for a couple of years. We got acquired off the off the market by a US based company. Through that process, I thought, okay, well, I need to. I want to get back to you know the startup, the tech environment. Um, What should I do? I started looking around for, you know, companies to work with um, and um, a friend of mine had uh, just started an accelerator program. And so, um, you know, this is sort of all coinciding around the same time where I'm thinking about, you know, what ideas should I have and what should I do? And he sent me an email and said, um, you know, I'm starting this accelerator program, we're going to be looking for ideas around, you know, tech space um, and we're partnered with the uh, NRMA, so the National Roads and Motoring Association. And so we're looking for ideas that, you know, they would be interested. All right. So I just sort of filed that away and then probably, you know, a couple of weeks later, um, you know, every afternoon I would take my my dog for a walk with my wife and we'd walk around the, around the suburb and, um, you know, we'd talk about oh, what holiday should we go on next. And so um, she said to me, um, hey, I'd, I'd like to go camping. I've never been camping but I don't want to stay in a tent and I want to take the dog with us. So can you go and see if you can find something? <laughs> so I started looking. I thought, okay, well, maybe a you know, motorhome might be, might, might be a good option. Yep. And then I found oh, all the motorhomes for rent were all located right next to an international airport. So for me, that's a two-hour drive to get the motorhome. Um, it was expensive. You couldn't take your pet. You had to pay extra for the table and chairs. You had to do all this other stuff. And I thought, yes, oh, not a very good customer experience. Um <laughs> And then so, you know, we talk about this every afternoon for a, for a week or so when we're walking around the suburb. And then I just just clicked that we'd walk past 20, 30 vans just sitting on the side of the road. And I'd, been, you know, I'd used Airbnb numerous times. Uh, and I thought, oh, it'd be great if there was like an Airbnb thing where you could just rent your neighbour's caravan and take it away. And then I thought, oh, that's a great idea. Um, and then... I got a follow-up email from my friend saying, hey, we're still looking for ideas that the NRMA might be interested in. I went, ah, I think that's a thing. I contacted him and said, you know, this is the idea. And he said, yeah, good idea. Um, I think you should apply. So uh, he said applications close next week. Um, So then (laughs) I had to come up with uh, a name, build a website, um, build a pitch deck uh, in five (laughs) days. So that's what I did
1: and the rest as they say is history mate that's a that's a pretty cool story i you know I, what i quite like about this is the 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 combination of opportunity and I guess idea. If I can put those sort of side by side, there's there's plenty of stories of people who have this burning thing. This is what we must do, and this is the only thing I want to do, and this is what yeah, this is what happens. Um, I think the other the other option is you know smart people who've run into people who had those conversations, and say, hey, here's what's going on. This feels like the perfect combination of that. You weren't a gun for hire saying build amplify for me. You weren't even necessarily saying I, I just have to I have to give everything I'm doing. I have to just do this thing. You've kind of gone from okay, well. Maybe there's an idea here. You get a couple of prods from someone who's saying, "Look, there might be someone who's prepared to invest in if, you, if it was good enough uh, and appropriate for what it is." There's a lot of there's a lot of circumstance there. There's a lot of sliding doors, but yeah, you know, it was a, it was a very good idea, and and the opportunity, obviously, to get some funding pretty easy and kind of start this thing up was obviously was obviously pretty clear too. What was that? What was that? Five days like? Do you maybe I'll ask a different way? How quickly did you have a really strong conviction this was going to work?
0: I think. Um when I spoke to a few people about it and they were they would, were all people that said, oh, that'd be great, I would use that. I thought, okay, well, it's definitely something here. But, you know, you always get that, um, that confirmation bias sometimes at the start as well. Um, and then um, when, I, when we pitched to the NRMA, there was actually another company that had exactly the same idea and they pitched oh, on right. the same day as us.
1: Okay.
0: And so... Um <laughs> we had, had identified, though, that um, one of the key things we wanted to do was make it easy for people to actually drop a vehicle off for somebody. So we, we said, I don't I don't see people just willingly handing their vans over to nobody to, to tow them. And so when I was a kid, my, my parents had a caravan, and when we were driving home from a holiday, we were involved in an accident. And so the caravan smashed into a rock wall, and after that moment my dad said, I'm never towing a caravan again. But all of my other family members, you know, all my cousins and uncles and aunties and grandparents would all go away in their caravan. So um, what my one of my other relatives would do, he would take his caravan for us, set it up, and we could still have that holiday experience <laughs> and we would pay him to do it. No. And so I knew that there was a, there was a real key thing to it and it's, it's still remained a key part of Camplify today is that ability for people who don't want to tell or don't have the experience or the confidence to be able to say to the owner, hey, can you take this here for me? And so, um, you know, I think once we started describing that's we were going to build the backbone of the business on and everyone went, oh, that's fantastic. I would actually do that. I went, okay. There's definitely something here.
1: I'm curious as to your own experience. You obviously had an experience of growing another business from from 10 to over 100 employees. You've so you've been on that growth journey before. You know what it's like to have to scale people. Um, I'm curious from from your own perspective. Obviously, you've got a software background. You've got a sales and marketing background from your other previous roles. If you think about the the skills of a founder, uh, I'll use you as an example specifically, but feel free to reflect on others as well. Um, what, what what core skills do you think you've brought to the business and then what have you hired to to make the company
0: even better? I think um, the most important thing is to really understand what you're doing, why you're doing it and how you're doing it. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in software. I can, you know, I can code if a gun's held to held my head probably very badly, but I understand it and I have I really made sure that I drill into that with um, that team so that I can really know exactly what they're doing, why they're doing it. And I can question them as well and say, "What? why did you make that decision? Um, you know, from a, a finance perspective, you know, I can do the same. You know, from a, um, you know, a marketing perspective, I can do the same. So, you know, I guess I, I'm a bit of an all-rounder who has enough knowledge to be able to really drill into these departments and, and ask the right questions so that I can get the right information and ensure that we're taking that right process. And But also understand why did you make that decision? Um, and how does this align with where I want to take the company to? And so, you know, I think that um, from a founder's perspective, um, you know, me, me being a teacher actually you taught all those <laughs> things at university how to yep. how yeah, to right. understand how to um, you know, develop the skills to be able to, to teach a core subject. Um, but then that you've got students with you know 12 different multiple intelligence understandings that all learn in a different way and all have a different way of understanding and, and dealing with them. So I think that you know it actually has given me the ability to number one be a really good leader. Number two, understand the message that I'm trying to take it and how to get people to be on board with that and how to sort of teach them where I want to take the business. Um, so I think, you know, it's given me uh, sort of a wide background of skills that actually is maybe quite a unique business person.
1: So at some point, help me understand the, the transition then. At some point, you're you're working for the man, uh, you're getting paid a salary, you're doing a great job for whoever you're working for. You have this idea for Camplify and then at some point, your life you you kind of get to the point of like we've got I've got to do this, and that's so I'm always fascinated by that question, mate, largely because I've never done that. I'm not sure I could do that. We're all built a bit differently. Um, I, I host another podcast, Motley Fool Money, with a bloke who's who's done exactly that. He gave and, and when he, he was he was working the Motley Fool originally, he left us. So I'm going to start my own thing. And I'm like, oh, dude, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But you've got a good job, and you've got a good career, and and you know, really, like, is that you know, do you really want to do this? Like, I've got, to, I've just got to go and do it. I've got to go and do this thing. Um, so, can you take me through that experience? Mate? You, you obviously pitched to the NMA. I assume you win that competition, or, or at least get some funding. Um, and then there's there's got to be some dark nights of the soul between that competition, and then finally saying, I'm in, I'm all in, I'm doing this, and I'm giving everything else up to do it. Can you can you describe that that time for me?
0: Yeah. So I think. Um- The thing is that it all happened so quickly. Um, So we got into that program, that program went for 12 weeks. So um, I basically took um, four days a week leave for 12 weeks um, and did the program, worked a day a week. Um, And uh, luckily enough, I had sort of customers all over the world. So I was able to sort of do night times and mornings and stuff uh, with that company. At the end of the 12 weeks, We'd had you know a bit of press, and you know, we had so many people signing up to use the platform, uh, okay. and so many people showing interest in it um, that uh, it was kind of like, well, we just have to do it. And then um, at the end of that twelve weeks, NRMA said, okay, we want to invest some money, and so we raised six hundred and fifty k after twelve weeks of existing, um, and so it was kind of like one of those things where. You know, it was it was it was just destined to happen, and um, yeah, we had some capital behind us. I went to my work and said, "Hey, I think I'm going to go off and do this thing," uh, and they said, "Well, you know, we're downsizing now because we're part of this much bigger company. Would you like a redundancy?" And I said, "Yes, please." Oh, um, so yeah, it all just worked out.
1: That 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 twelve weeks is, is remarkable. Did you at any point think? i'm being swept up in this or that it went had you had longer do you think you might have gone with it it just strikes me as you say you go from a five-day lead into a pitch deck a 12-week program at the end of it you got 600 grand and you've given up your job uh again I, i'm just thinking that through um if it went if the program made longer if it went if it had been slower to take up traction at the end of the 12 week, if you hadn't got the funding are, are these the step-off points that just circumstance like and obviously hard work and good ideas but you know, what do you think about the sliding doors of, of, of that twelve-week period?
0: I think if it had it went on longer, I probably would have actually said, oh, this is actually what way harder than I thought it was going to be." Oh,
1: there you go. So um, <laughs> the fact that it
0: was quick actually probably helped me to make the decision. Um, okay, you know, because I think we, we had so many customers sign up on the hire side, on the on the ah, demand side, right. Saying I want to do this, but then we had to get the supply, and then <laughs> okay. to get to get the supply, you have to get insurance. Yeah, okay. and so Tell you me. know there were some challenges, and it really took us you know probably another twelve months after that to really start to get going. Wow. Okay, there you go.
1: And those, uh, let me keep going down this path. Then those, those twelve months, you obviously got a family, you got a wife. Um, I, I assume you're probably not drawing a salary at that point. Maybe you, are, it doesn't matter. But but in any case, that you know, do, do, how how do you how does an entrepreneur Remain confident, committed, convicted, during some of those
0: tougher times. Yeah, look, I think um, we just had so many customers who wanted to use it. We just knew it was going yeah, to be okay. a thing, and so it was just about how do we solve the problem. Funny way to so I think it we went to we must have gone to six or seven insurance companies, right? And so every time we got a no, we'd say, "Tell us why." Okay, and what do we need to do? And so we'd, you know, write all those things down and say, right, how we solve that? And we go to the next one. Right. And then they'd say, oh, no, but it's this reason now. Okay. So then by the time we got to the last one, they sort of had no choice but to say yes. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, love- it, it was one of those things that we, we sort of could mm-hmm. see the momentum building.
1: Yeah.
0: And the, the first couple of customers that signed up to list their van, you know, were making some really great money straight away. Okay, right. And so, you know, we could see that there was... It was going to scale. It was just a matter of when and how.
1: I'm curious as to then the journey from there, mate. You, you you spend most of your time as a as a private company. I think you've been listed for a couple of years now on the ASX. Uh,
0: yeah, we're listed um, in
1: t- June twenty one. So so for the. The, the five or six years leading up to that obviously you're growing and growing you decide to list in 2021 what's that what's that i guess the process again i'm always fascinated in the, the change of state and the, the process and the challenge and the, and the opportunities there um for some people listing in the asx is is the goal other people do it because they have to do it to raise some capital want to do it to raise some capital on some some better price capital sometimes investors want exits um why does Kemplify go from a, a successful private company and decide to go
0: public well, it was actually quite difficult for us to, to raise capital um, in the private markets. So, um, you know, we'd, um, we'd had a couple, of re- a couple of good rounds. We had a couple of strategic rounds and, and um, a couple of venture rounds. But there was always this belief amongst the Australian venture capital market that, oh, this, thing's n- this category isn't big enough. And so it, it won't um, be able to ever be something significant. And so, um, you know, I think the, um, the overall thought from us was that, you know, we need to be able to um, build this out so that we can actually, um, uh, you know, get to get it to where we need it to be. And so, um, you know, we looked at the public market and we had lots and lots of our customers saying to us over a period of time, how do I become a shareholder? And so we, we wanted to give them a way to do that um, and we wanted to, um, you know, really open it up so that we could have a larger shareholding, get access to capital. And we knew that this was a really consumer-friendly brand. People just get it when you tell them what it is. And so, you know, we thought that was sort of perfect for the public market. And we had seen a number of other marketplaces had gone through that process just before us. So, um, you know, we had Bike Exchange, Mad Paws, um, Air Tasker. So, we, we, we knew that there was, there was a spot for us in that environment.
1: It can be a challenge being a, being a public company. It can also be wonderfully, uh, uh, wonderfully freeing. How have you found that process? What have, what have been the, some of the pluses and minuses for those entrepreneurs listening to us who are saying, well, maybe it's for me, maybe it's a goal. Or you are like, you know what, guys, this is the place to be or are there some salutary lessons? How have you found the, the positives and negatives of being public?
0: The positive is that... Um, We've been a company that's always performed really well. We've grown really well. We're really focused on metrics. We're a really scrappy company. Um, we have um, really excellent customer acquisition rates. Um, you know, marketing is really good. So they're all metrics that the public market can understand and get behind. So you know, we can show those, those metrics really simply. We can show our unit economics. Uh, people can see where we're going to. Um, so... You know, I think people have really um, understood that and bought into that journey with us, which has been really good. And so, you're, I've been, you know, pitching the business essentially for eight years. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, in some regards, that process isn't any different to the public market process. Um, you know, we had to put some more rigor around um, the reporting structure and the audit structure and the corporate governance that we needed to, and bring in some um, independent directors um but you know they're all good things for a company anyway and so that's just made us a better organization and it's made us um more effective and it's made us more focused um and it's it's shown the really good uh, underlying business metrics that we have um have have translated really well into this environment
1: can you take me back to the, the the category then so um, obviously, you talked about the fact that you struggled to get investors at some point because I thought it was too small, not going to be big enough, not going no opportunity, that kind of thing. Um, t- tell, me, tell me about the, the, the market for rental caravans, motorhomes, RVs, camper trailers, whatever they are. Um, what is the size of the market? How, how big is the opportunity? What are you seeing at the moment going on in the, in the industry?
0: Yeah, so um, I think um, you know, overall, the market segment is you know, a lot bigger than pe- most people think. And the reason for that is because we're kind of building the market as we go. So we, we always had kind of the leading uh, competitors in the space were kind of uh, Apollo Tourism and Leisure, who's publicly traded as ATL, um, and uh, Tourism Holdings Limited, which is on that, and New Zealand Stock Exchange's uh, THL. Um, so, you know, they're businesses that are quite big businesses. Um, you know, they're doing, uh, you know, in the Australian market, sort of pre-COVID numbers of, you know, $200 million a year in rental, uh, you know, in the New Zealand market, they're doing a sort of $160 million a year in rentals and then they're in other markets uh, around the world as well. But they've only really been servicing the inbound cust- inbound tourist. So that sector is actually much, much bigger than that. Um, so in Australia, like for example, last year in Australia, we did 12.6 million camping trips. Wow. And so we knew that the customer wasn't just those inbound tourists, but the customer was my wife Yes. Who doesn't want to go on away <laughs> in a tent? Yeah. And so it's yep. getting those people to convert from a tent to a caravan um, on demand whenever they want to use it in, from their local neighbourhood. And so we also knew that the average customer who buys a van usually takes ten years to buy a van before we came along. So they'd go through this process where you know they'd buy a tent, they'd upgrade the tent, <laughs> they might buy a, ca- a, a trailer tent. They'd buy a camper trailer. They'd buy a pop-out. Then they'd buy a caravan. Um, and so that whole process took, took 10 years. And it took 10 years because people didn't have the available capital to just go and buy a $50,000, 60000 yeah, right, caravan. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, but people wanted that. So, you know, our focus has been on how do we let young families have access to that for a reasonable price whenever they want to use it. And that's why we've been really successful
1: i love the model too because it makes a whole lot of sense you know people who who buy these things camper trailer caravan whatever it is are not are not usually doing it because they plan to use it 52 weeks a year and so there is that sense of well, i've bought it and it's now in the driveway or it's out the front or it's whatever, and i'm not getting anything from it it's just sitting there and if i know i've got a way to actually make a few extra dollars from it well i probably will because why wouldn't i and as you say that the reverse is also true those who don't want to or can't paid the upfront get to then also benefit from that it's 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 the perfect match i I can see why the opportunity is 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 so huge you've then gone overseas you acquired paul camper just recently um I'm just, I just—I know it's only a couple of weeks ago. I think it's reasonably recently you've identified it. Um, curious as to the, the, the international opportunity. I, I don't know how similar or different uh, international camping is compared to Australia. We've always got a much bigger um, nothingness in the middle of the country, which makes it more accessible and achievable. But uh, I'm sure there are people in the rest of the world who want to do the same thing. Um, maybe just talk us about what Paul Camper is, why you acquired it, and, and the international
0: opportunity for Camplify. Yeah, we, we first expanded internationally to the UK in 2017. So we've been um, in that market for quite a long time. Um, we could see that it was a growing sect- sector and really unbeknownst to me when I started looking at it, like there's actually more caravans in the UK than there are in Australia. Oh, is that actually, right? You, would, you wouldn't think, but no. there are. There you go. Um, and, you know, then we started looking at other countries. We could see that... You know, Europe overall was a market that, you know, was quite significant. Uh, so I think I think there's about 5.6 million RVs in Europe. Um, so, uh, you know, much, much bigger um, than the Australian market. The, the German market is about 1.4 million RVs, so about double the size of the Australian market almost. Overall in Germany has been growing by 30% in the last couple of years. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really high on the agenda It uh, really people are looking for more of a connection to the outdoors and more of a, a disconnect from social media and, and the modern lifestyle. And so I think, you know, it's been a really uh, trending uh, holiday. And that, you know, then, you know, COVID accelerated that as well. Um, and so people have now started to shift a little bit and think about what do I really want from my holiday and how do I want to experience it? Um, and so, you know, we can see that... Um, you know, a platform like ours, which has this ability to be highly distributed um, and really doesn't require a huge investment to be able to do that. It has really ultimate scale and really what you've invested in is a tech platform, which then is enhanced by the people we employ and the products that we provide it as to that. So the ability for us to be in these key markets can happen really quickly. And, and it really, when you've got a couple of organizations out there such as Paul Camper who's doing a really fantastic job and but it's essentially the same thing as what we're doing in another market we can bring those two companies together and achieve a lot of synergies as a result of that so um you know there's there's really big opportunities throughout that whole European market um and not just from the domestic tourist, but then now we can really start to drill into that international tourist so you know the the um The German segment in in Australia, for example, in a pre-COVID environment, uh, I think, you know, combined New Zealand and Australia made up, um, Germans made up about 650,000 guests to Australia, visitors to Australia. And so a lot of those people do caravanning and camping as part of that holiday. So, you know, we can now really start to become this true global player, working in multiple countries, servicing this common customer through a common technology platform.
1: The opportunity to expand around the world obviously carries lots of revenue opportunity. Hopefully for you guys, um, hopefully also some, some increase. incremental just 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 sheer size of market, size of opportunity, that kind of stuff. I'm curious to just again a bit of a bit of a left field question, but brand wise, platform wise, when you look at something like that, do you are you thinking about? The, the, is it the scale? Is, is it the ability to put it all on one platform? Are you going to change branding over? How, how, does, how do you kind of think about, um, you know, you, you're a growing business, um, but, you know, in terms of sheer scale, there's still plenty of opportunity ahead for you. It must have been tempting to run a second brand because people know and love it. it must have been tempting to, to, to you know, put it on one brand because it makes the whole platform easier and simpler and whatever. How, how, do you, how do you go through that part of that process of trying to work out what to keep and what to get rid of or merge in or whatever from, from an acquisition?
0: Yeah, so you know, we looked at it from what is the investment being made into the brand, for example, in that in that case. So, um, you know, they're they're the biggest in that market. Um, they own that and dominate that market, they've expanded into other countries. There's connection to that brand. So, you know, from our point of view, we don't see the need to replace that brand in those markets that they're in. Um, they've done a really great job and invested a lot into building that brand. So, you know, that's worth something and we want to maintain that. What we do want to do, though, is create one single platform that we can both use. And we've designed our platform and our environment in a way that um, is agnostic by the uh, by the item. So, you know, if we wanted to expand into other items in the future, we can. Um, but we've also done it so that it can be across multiple different uh, locations. So, currently, for example, we run our uh, all our different countries that are in as separate front ends with a common back end. So that allows us to then say, all right, we can have poor Camper Germany with a separate front end, a separate experience, but a common back end. So, um, you know, we, we sort of designed it to be truly scalable so that we can really expand this uh, in, in multiple different geographies, in multiple different product sets. Over that
1: sort of eight-odd-year Camplify journey thus far, uh, what are some of the... Are the lessons you've learned, things you wish you'd known, maybe things you were glad you didn't know at the time that kind of allowed you to, to you know, ignorance is bliss sometimes. Um, what, what have been some of the real challenges of, of scaling Campfire to the size it is now?
0: I think, you know, we were, you know, building as we went. You know, we're trying to build a house as, as we go. And so um, we didn't have a set of blueprints. And so, you know, I think that um, knowing obviously now what, what has worked um, what the challenges have been and where we need to, to go next with that, you know, nine, eight to nine years experience. Um, you know, we could have massively shortcutted lots of things and, um, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, we could have um, done, done lots of things differently. Um, but I think we sort of had to go through that journey anyway to learn that as part of it. Um, I think we've done very well at um, being very agile but most importantly, listening to the customer. So, you know, as all the different products that we've, we've built um, that's, you know, created multiple revenue streams for us, we've done it because the customer said, oh, this thing's really hard and we've gone, I've gone okay, well, maybe we can solve that for you and that's become another product. Um, or, um, you know, looking at it saying there's something different that we can do here versus what we're just doing normally because, you know, we're talking to customers and, and being able to identify an opportunity or identify a need that they have. Um, So, you know, I think we've we've really um, understood that startup methodology about being a lean business and seeing how do we test and measure and uh, be able to pivot the business based on the direction that the customers are telling us that it needs to go in. And, you know, we've been very supportive of them so that, you know, that's, that's been one of the secrets to how we've been able to grow the business at a CAGR of 90% over the last four years.
1: Let's pivot to the future then, but I'll start with the past. Uh, the business over the last quarter, or the quarter to must have been uh, thirty September, uh, used one point six million dollars worth of cash. So there was a, a cash outflow from the business. Still, fifteen odd million dollar, thirteen point three million dollar uh, balance. So you know, more than enough cash in theory to take you for a little while yet. But but you know, higher reported losses over the two financial years that have been reported. That I've seen um, the, the I guess the challenge of. Getting the balance right between investing for growth, but also recognizing that at some point either the money runs out or the market's patience runs out, or both. Um, I guess as we get towards the future, I'll, I'll ask the broader, bigger picture future in a minute. But how do you kind of think about investing for growth in general, but also particularly in the current environment where the market's not in love with businesses that are that are using up cash?
0: Yeah, well, I think um, you yeah, know we've we've sort of always had this horizon that will you know would take us a you know a couple of years to get to that that um, cash flow break even cash flow positivity and uh, you know a bit positive uh, environment um, I think what we have done is we've we have shifted that quite you know quite a bit so you know when you drill down into that quarterly result for example um, when you normalize some of those things so you know we had some one-off costs in there Uh, we had a, we started to supply, uh, you know, government contract as as part of what we were doing. And that caused a delay in when we collect cash. So when you sort of look at all those things and you normalise it, we're actually probably in a pretty close to break even cash position in that environment. So we're getting closer and closer towards that. And so as we start to see, and, and we are a seasonal business, you know, we will have peaks and troughs, you know, we'll have big cash collection quarters and and we'll have lower ones uh, because of that seasonality. So, you know, we're really comfortable with where we're at in terms of that overall plan. Um, and we're comfortable that we're getting closer and closer and closer towards where we want to be at and where the market wants to see us at. Um, but we're also doing things to better control our GP margin, uh, to better control our uh, our costs. Um, the, the platform has... An amazing network effect in it. So what that means that you know, the more and more customers we get, the less and less we have to spend on a, on a percentage to revenue basis for marketing. So um, you know, we all of those things every quarter get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And we're, we're building and building and building. So you know, I think um, the people that are on that journey with us, um, you know, I think I think we'll, we'll be have some really good long term results
1: let's talk about those long-term results then uh, as a as a company the Motley Fool is a long-term investment business and we you know would always ask CEOs more about the, the future particularly the distant future than, than the right now because that's where the value is either made or or, or not uh, let's take me to 2027 take me to 2032 what's the picture of Camplify Take me can be numbers or not but we, you know if you if you're kind of in front of the staff you're saying here's where we're going here's our 10-year plan here's what we want to do and achieve and be uh, what's the what's the Camplify of five and ten years time look like? Yeah, we,
0: we've been very clear that um, you know we want to be the the global go to booking engine for this RV se- sector, and so um, you know we're we're building towards that you know through acquisition and, and organic um, activity um, where there's a lot of upside still to go in in those environments in, in all the markets are in and the other markets as well. Um, you know we've also got this platform that. You know, we can look at other things. And so you know we can look at other market segments, uh, we can look at other pro- common products that that link across all of those different segments. Um, and and we can look at um, how we really are in you know a dominant position in those markets um, to be able to service that. So you know I think there's um, a huge amount of opportunity for us through that investment. Um, and through the team that we've developed so that we can really create, um, you know, some, some really good long-term engaged customers, um, you know, and, and across multiple different products and, and across multiple different geographies.
1: Mate, I'm an avid camper. I have, a, I have a camper trailer myself, so maybe we should be listening on Camplify. But uh, in the meantime, I, I, can't, I can't move on to our, our favourite question to finish off without asking, me, asking you, what's your favourite destination in Australia to go camping? Uh,
0: tassie, I would say. Yeah, has he? Okay, I've not been yeah, there. Fantastic. Camping yet. Um, it's of course, it's so, so many different environments that you can go to, and it's so pristine, and you can really, you know, you can stay in some some great spots. You can you know, literally get up in the morning, cook your bacon and eggs, um, and you know, see a wombat walking across the car park. It's it's amazing. It's really spectacular. Um, so that's that's my favorite.
1: A particular town or campsite or location.
0: Bruny Island's really nice. Um, you know, Wineglass Bay is beautiful. Um, there's there's just so many there, to be honest, yeah.
1: Awesome, awesome. All right, let's finish off with our, fi- our favourite questions our listeners want to know from all of our guests. Uh, Justin, what are you reading, watching, streaming and listening
0: to at the moment? Look, a, a, a bit of lots of different stuff. I like, um, from the podcast perspective, uh, Business Wars is, is great. Um, yeah, I listen to that a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, from... Um, uh, there's a few different uh, good TV shows. Um, I just can't remember the name of one at the moment, but um, lots of different business ones. Uh, Succession is a, okay. a, no. a really interesting one. Um, <laughs> not lessons from there, are you? Yeah, no, well, hopefully not what, <laughs> <laughs> what to not do, but, you exactly. um, yeah, a really, really good, um, interesting program. Um, you know, from a reading perspective, um, you know, I've read a few of the uh, different um Free economics books. Um, you know, I'm a real numbers guy. I really, I love data, um, and I love the way that you can really understand um, various different things that are happening inside your business um, from a data perspective. So, you know, all those free economics ones are great. Very, very cool.
1: Mate, um, obviously, camping trends are, are foremost on your mind, but what other trends are you keeping an eye on, whether it's around the world, locally? What's fascinating you, scaring you, making you feel good, uh, just, just grabbing your attention?
0: Yeah, I think, obviously, you know, that the one that we've all got to look at at the moment is the, you know, inflationary cost of living, um, interest rates. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I try, I'm trying to understand what that means for us and our customers, um, and so, you know, I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, we're we're in we're just operating in different historical cycles, and so, you know, you can you can look at um, some of the things that have gone uh, on in the past, and you look very closely at them, and the same thing, but it's probably just happening faster now than what it was happening before because the information age we live in, and so, you know, I look at. Um, the, the peak of caravanning in Australia. So the peak of caravanning in Australia was 1976. <laughs> there you go. So, you know, we've never actually got to the same level as a, on a per capita basis of caravans um, as we got in 1976. And 1976 was also the height of stagflation. It was high interest rates. It was international travel becoming too expensive. Um, you know, it, everything... Going up, petrol prices going up, you name it. But you know, domestic tourism and caravanning became the thing to do, and so we then had a huge amount of investment at that stage into caravan parks and into all those things, and we're seeing exactly the same thing happen now. And so, um, you know, I look at that and say, well, what does that mean for our business, and what's going to happen in this segment over the next couple of years? That has an impact on hirers who want to experience and be part of that overall position, and. Uh, you know, our average booking value is, uh, you know, about $1,270. So, you know, for a family holiday, that's a very well-priced holiday when you compare it to other things. So it fits really well into that segment. On the owner's side, you know, we've got people who have, you know, made investment into a vehicle, they've got rising interest rates, they've got inflationary pressures, and now's the time for them to say, Maybe I should list it and get some get some return from it. So you know we start to look at how that will affect the business as well, um, and then you know it's looking at and you know, what what does that mean for for us as as a business and how do we how can we be a part of that? And then you've got the added interesting element that we haven't had before is what does the global energy green crisis do for us? How do we play a part in the transition from to the electric vehicle and to the, um, you know, how do we help those consumers be a part of that transition through our platform? And there's a really great opportunity for us to be able to be a really interesting part in that process as well. So, you know, I think it's all of those sort of trends and patterns and seeing, you know, how does that translate for us? There's a
1: lot going on, mate, but hopefully the times will really be good for you. Uh, about 1976, was when my grandparents drove a Millard Caravan, towed one with a Tirana across the Nullarbor Plain. So uh, I, have, I have some family history about that time and it makes sense to me now why that was uh, happening about that about that age. Mate, um, you're obviously eight-ish years into this particular entrepreneurial journey. Uh, you've learned some lessons. You've uh, you've obviously got some advice to give. What advice would you give an entrepreneur who was just starting out considering starting their own business? I think
0: The most important thing is to really understand your customer. That is the key thing. And not just the people around you. You've got to understand what motivates the people that will be your consumer who have never you've never met before. And so um, you know, I remember when we first started um, you know, a group of us, went to a caravan show, we took a clipboard, we asked all the people who were entering the show a bunch of questions. Uh, we started to get that data, understand those customers, understand what were the motivating factors, who our customer was going to be. And so we're really able to nail down that segment and really just say, I just want those customers. So I can really be very defined and I can be very targeted with my marketing spend uh, and I can be very economic with it. And so um, I think the temptation for entrepreneurs particularly um, is to go and build something, you know, invest a lot of money, build a tech platform, go after this customer without really knowing that it's going to be really adopted and what that revenue model is going to be. And so, you know, we've always built the product on a MVP basis, a minimum viable product. How do we just test this, see that it's going to work, do the minimum, understand it, build it, improve it, and then scale it?
1: Mate, I'm going to finish my last question. I'm an optimist by nature. I figure most entrepreneurs have to be optimists, although some have told me they were uh, optimistic pessimists. So I'm not, first I guess the question is, are you an optimist? If you are, uh, what are you optimistic about?
0: Uh, definitely an optimist, but I'm also a realist. Um, so I think um, the, the data really supports my op- optimism and that, that's <laughs> nice. that's what I like to look at is nice. this is what I think is going to happen and this is what I hope ha- is going to happen, but let me see the data that show that it is actually really happening. Nice. Um, so, look, I, I'm, I'm really optimistic about um, how people are going to really get back to having travel and tourism as high on their agenda and so I think... You know, we saw a bit of a pause to that during, you know, COVID periods. Um, and, you know, Australians in particular, you know, we we absolutely love travel and it's just part of our, it's not just discretionary spend for us, it's part of our spend that <laughs> we have as, on, yeah. on, on, on our family basis. And so, you know, I think more people than ever in the next couple of years um, in particular going to say, travel is high on my agenda and the experience is high on my agenda. And that's something that I want to invest in, um, and that you know I've had had my last couple of years investing in you know, rebuilding my house or you know buying the things that I want to buy and spending time uh, with my family. And now I want to take that family and, and have those experiences that I couldn't have for a couple of years. And so that's that's what I'm really optimistic about. Beautiful,
1: Justin Hales, founder and CEO of Camplify, Thank you for joining us on the Good Oil. Thank you. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.